Good morning, everyone. Happy to be here, rejoicing in the Lord. Isn't it amazing that some of our songs reminded us that no matter what's going on in your life as a believer, our hope is in, in Christ and in the glories of Calvary. Amen? And nothing can change that. Jesus' person and His work on the cross and dying for sinners on the cross and for sins is sufficient. And nothing can change what we have um, here on this earth, no matter how difficult things may be or how much suffering and persecution we see around in the world. Right? If you have, you've trusted in Christ, your hope is in Him alone. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much. As we were reminded in these songs of the glories of Calvary, Lord, You have been so gracious to us. Who are we, Father, but weak and vulnerable and frail sinners who deserve punishment for our sins? How many of us can't, forget, can't remember our pasts walking in rebellion against You, having no thought of You, hopeless and without You in the world? And yet, Lord, You were gracious to us. You extended Your divine favor upon us, not because of our works, not because of anything that we did, not because of our own merits, but because of the merits of the person and the work of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You for our Savior. Thank You that He has sufficiently paid for our sins on the cross and that nothing can change that. You cannot love us any more or any less as believers in Christ than You do this moment. We thank You for that, Lord. We thank You that we have a hope that is incorruptible and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us because of what Christ did on the cross. Thank You for Him. Father, I pray that You might impact our students as they are away at Camp Region in New Mexico with the glories of the person and the work of Christ, that, Lord, they would see Jesus in a new way in New Mexico, that Your Word would go forth powerfully and thunderously in a compelling way, and that Your Spirit, Your Holy Spirit, would visit the hearts of many of our students, or all of them, Lord. We pray for great things, expecting great things, because You are a great and glorious God. Father, I pray the same this morning for us, that as we look at Your Word on a very important issue and topic, that, Father, we would respond in loving obedience to You because of what You've done in Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been um, working through a series this summer on ecclesiology and the doctrine of the church. And, of course, you've heard from various pastors who have preached on various topics related to the doctrine of the church, both the theology of the church, who we are as a church, as well as some of the practical aspects of church life. And um, moving towards um, September, we will be re-engaging again, restarting our study through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we'll pick that back up, just so you know, as you're looking ahead on September 1st. We're going to be back in Mark uh, chapter 6, so I hope that if you haven't been doing this already in the last few weeks or months, that you would take an opportunity to just be reading through the Gospel of Mark and reorienting yourself with the contents of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick that up September 1st again. But as the Lord would have it, I think um, there are some remaining topics that are related to the church and church life that are very important for us uh, to be looking at together at the tail end of this um, series on the church this summer. And I want to really um, uh, teach on these in the next few weeks under this umbrella of essential practices of the church. Essential practices of the church. In essence, they are so what messages. So here's who we are as a church. We've talked so much about that. 
And now, so what? What does that mean for us as a church as far as some of the practical elements individually, as families, as well as a collective body, as a church? So these are essential practices of the church. Next week, we're going to have an opportunity to look at the ordinances of the church, um, the Lord's Supper, and as Greg Rhodes mentioned, baptism. What, what is it that we do up there behind me when we baptize people? What happens? What is the Lord's Supper all about? And why is it so critical for the life of our church? Why did Jesus, why was that so important to him that his people would, would um, commemorate um, his person and his work? We're going to look into that next week. The ordinance of the, of the church, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And then um, the last two weeks of August, I'm actually going to do a two-part series on the essential practice of church discipline. Um, which I, I like to refer to church discipline more, I think, biblically and accurately as loving church restoration. The practice of loving church restoration. So we're going to look at that um, issue in a two-part message. Okay, All of these um, essential practices of the church really are worthy of more than just one message, but I at least want to devote some sermons to those um, practical outworkings of our theology on the church. Okay, And this morning, I want to talk to you about church membership about church membership. You know, the whole idea of church membership, and maybe even as I mention it to you right now, all of a sudden you're cringing and you're twisting and turning on your seat, thinking, oh, great, here we go. What is he going to talk about? Is he going to be asking me to give money, do this, do that? What does this all mean? Whenever we hear the concept or the idea of church membership, um, we cringe at the thought of committing to a local church. But this is a very important topic for us to talk about. You know, um, church membership has fallen on hard times, especially in American Christianity, quote-unquote. Mark Dever, in his book, The Deliberate Church, writes this. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he writes this related to church membership. Security has become something of a preoccupation in our modern day. We create and purchase all sorts of devices to protect the entrance to our homes. We commonly create electronic passwords so that important information in our computers or bank accounts is not compromised. We keep tabs on our keys so that we don't lose access to our cars, our houses, our offices, and so that dangerous people will not gain access to them through our negligence. Airport terminals crawl with multiple metal detectors, and myriad security personnel guard the gates where people board. Even in the clubs and societies we join, access is often restricted so that the reputation of the organization is not compromised by unqualified members. Yet, with all the concern we show for security in almost every other aspect of our lives, it is surprising how careless many Christians and even pastors have become about the spiritual security of the local church, the apple of God's eye. I don't mean that we simply leave the doors of the physical building unlocked when everyone goes home after the morning service. I mean that many churches often leave the front door of spiritual membership unlatched. Now, usually the door is left ajar out of sincere love for those who want to come in and out of the cold. But the password of the gospel is often not required. The key of sound doctrine seldom made necessary. The verifying signs of holiness and love left unexamined and the purity of the church left open to compromise. What a great statement. What a great articulation of the problem in many churches that has become church membership, or the lack thereof of emphasis on church 
membership. And he goes on to talk about the importance of church membership in the church and that it is absolutely essential to the life and the health of a local church to both encourage and challenge people to commit to a local congregation. And we're going to talk a lot about that in this message. And beloved, again, I realize that anytime people hear about church membership, it's a very difficult subject for us to talk about because there are so many variables in this and so much background and baggage that many of us carry with regards to messages on church membership. Many people in churches, regular attenders, either reject the idea of formal church membership or they neglect it altogether in their lives. And there are so many reasons for this. Rejection or neglect of committing to a local church and formal church membership. Some people just say, you know what, I'm suspicious, frankly. If I were to be honest, I'm just suspicious of people in churches who are sinners just like me. I'm suspicious of leaders who probably just want my money. Or other people say, I'm just gun-shy. I'm just gun-shy as I see all the corruptions and forms of authority and all of that in our society. Um, The church is not immune to that. I've seen the abuse of authority. The church is corrupt. Why would I want to come under leaders in a local church when they're sinners just like me and they're going to take advantage of their authority to not um, 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 allow me or help me be healthy but hurt me or harm me? Some of us are just gun-shy about all forms of authority. Some people just say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, I'm, I'm fearful of being vulnerable or appearing weak. You know, maybe you have that baggage of having been a part of other local churches and committing to another local church in your past and things went south in that particular congregation and you just have a lot of baggage and you're very afraid of being vulnerable and, and being weak with, pe- with a new set of people, a new group of people in another local church. Some people say, I'm uncomfortable where I am. I'm just, I'm just comfortable rather. I'm comfortable. I'm secure. You know, I don't want high expectations. And some of us, maybe there's a subtle desire to just want to remain status quo, to not have a lot of responsibilities, to not have um, a lot of investment into the life of a church, yet another local congregation. Others of us, maybe we just say, you know what, it's too messy. It's too messy. I've got enough problems of my own personally, enough struggles, enough struggles within my family, life. Um, I have... Too much going on. To get involved in other people's lives is just too messy. I don't want to invite that into my life any more than I already have it. Other people say, you know what? It's too hypocritical, the church. Why would I want to become a member of a church where there are people with issues and weaknesses and vulnerabilities, right? I remember a friend telling me, or me and a friend talking to a guy once and challenging this guy about getting connected to a local church and the guy's like, you know what? The, the church is just full of sinners, full of sinners. And at one point, my savvy friend said, you know what? Yes, it is full of sinners. Join us. Join us. <laughs> the church is full of sinners saved by grace. Amen. But some of us say, ah, too hypocritical, too many sinners. And you're right. But don't forget the latter part where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, right? We're sinners saved by grace. Yet others of us are just ignorant. Maybe we just don't know better. Maybe we've never really thought about what the Bible has to say about commitment to a local congregation. All right? All of these reasons, beloved, and maybe a combination of these reasons might explain why many Christians don't pursue formal church membership, 
But I want to remind us this morning that none of those reasons or a combination of those reasons justify you not becoming a member of a local church. They don't justify living a life of passivity, keeping yourself deliberately distanced from other believers who can impact you and invest into you. And all of those reasons, or a combination of those reasons, if they are true of you, reflect a fundamental misunderstanding of the church and your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to His bride, the church, the apple of His eye. That's why we're doing this summer series, by the way. To understand who we are as a church, as believers in Jesus Christ, so that we would respond and be propelled to a greater level of loving commitment, grateful commitment in light of the grace of Christ and having died for sinners like us on the cross. Having purchased us. You know what's saddest of all? If this is you, any one of these or a combination of these, when you succumb to this type of thinking, you know what you do? And this is where pastorally I want to appeal to you this morning especially. When you succumb to this line of thinking, you cut yourself off from the umbrella of God's wonderful blessing that comes to you when you are committed and connected not only to Christ, but to other believers who are in the same struggle and race of the Christian life as you are. Oh, I really want to appeal to you this morning. You are harming yourself. You are hurting yourself when you are disconnected to the, from the church of Christ. And not only that, but you're hurting the body of Christ by keeping a so-called safe distance from real life-on-life discipleship with other believers. The process of growing in conformity to Christ. You know, there's a big difference between going to church and actually belonging to a church by the way that you function or you live as a Christian and as a family which shows itself in the the choices that you make, the priorities that you carry out, the goals that you have, should be centered in and around the life of God's people, the church, beloved. There's a big difference between going to church, attending church, or going to a church building on Sunday mornings and truly belonging and moving in one direction with a people, with a movement, a living, vibrant organism of believers who are putting their faith in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like dating, isn't it? In dating, there's no commitment, right? You don't belong to one another. There's no formal, formal commitments made at all. You're just kind of trying each other out. Maybe you're, you're benefiting from some of those blessings of hanging out with that person and getting to know them for a while, but there is no commitment there. None. You know, we tend to treat the church that way. We just date the church. We want to get to know it a little bit. And we go on for months and years at a time, never truly functionally committing to a local church. And we just date the church. And you know what? Eventually, if things don't work out or somebody or somebody gets under my skin, I just move on to the next local church. You know, in the early church, they didn't have that, that, uh, that, that opportunity to do that. And in many churches, solid, healthy churches around the world where there's persecution and suffering, you recognize, do you understand that they don't have the choice of 10 churches within a one mile radius? If there are, there are issues in a local church to work through or struggles or whatever, they work through them because they understand that they are spiritual family. And you know what? They are in this thing until Jesus returns or takes them home. They just don't have the options that we, that we do. We tend to treat the church like it's just a pair of shoes. If it doesn't fit me anymore, 
It's too old, getting too old for me. I'll just go get buy another pair of shoes. That's how we treat the church. Or we treat the church like a buffet. Where you pick and choose what you want. And if you don't like something, you discard it. No harm, no foul. If the church doesn't meet my needs as I define my needs, as soon as it doesn't, I'll go somewhere else where I'll get what I need from that particular church. It's like a buffet. That is not Jesus' bride, beloved. It is not. The church doesn't just exist to meet your needs. Though we certainly derive benefits from being a part of a local church. You're also to be thinking others and practicing the one another's as we're going to see in the context of the local church. For other people, the church is simply like a spectator event. Kind of coming in and out. I benefit from the performance up front. But you are just a passive spectator rather than an active participant, you see. Maybe as I'm mentioning some of these things, you fall under these categories or a variety of them. Maybe this is where you're at. And this morning, I really want to challenge you as a Christian. If you profess to know Jesus as Lord, you confess Jesus as Lord. I want to challenge you with the fact that you are not called to just be comfortable here on this earth, but committed to the local church. And you are not called to be autonomous, but accountable to other people in the context of a local church. This is biblical. This is what God says. This is what glorifies God. This is what benefits other people and edifies, builds up other people when you are a part of a local church. And listen to me again. This is what is best for you, spiritually speaking, so that you could be healthy and vibrant and growing and maturing in the context of the local church. I want to challenge you towards greater commitment and greater accountability expressed in church membership. And so my goal is to impress upon our hearts the importance of membership so that you will do that. And listen to me. That could be here at Calvary Bible Church. But I want you to know this. None of us as elders are hurting and thinking these these people, such and such and such and such, are so indispensable that they must become members of Calvary Bible Church. Listen to me. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you at Calvary Bible Church. So whether it's Calvary or any other Bible-teaching, shepherd-led, discipleship-oriented church, you need to plug in somewhere for the sake of your spiritual health and vibrancy. That is what I'm aiming for this morning. Whether it's Calvary or anywhere else for that matter. A Bible-teaching, shepherd-led, discipleship-making church. You need to plug in. Okay? So as we deal with this issue of church membership, I want to ask and answer three questions for us. All right? If you're taking notes, we're going to ask and answer three basic questions. The first one is this. Where is membership in the Bible? Where is membership in the Bible? Before we even define, give a basic definition of what church membership is, where is membership in the Bible? And this question will take the bulk of our time this morning. So you see there are some who either reject or neglect formal membership altogether, And they throw up their hands in the air and they say, Campus, it's all fine and dandy, but you show me a chapter and verse where church membership is found. Show me. And you know what my answer is? I can't. I can't show you one chapter and verse in the Bible that explicitly says the following, Thou shalt become a church member in a local church. I can't think of a chapter and verse that explicitly says that. 
Thou shalt become a member of a local church. However, I have something much better for you, or the Word of God does. Because I think that functional membership, that is visibly identifying yourself with a local church for mutual fellowship, accountability, and shepherding oversight is all over the New Testament in our Bibles. All over the place. It's not just one chapter and verse. It is implied and inferred all over the New Testament. So under this first question, I want to give you five evidences of formal for, for formal church membership, all right? Five evidence here, evidences of membership, formal church membership in the New Testament. First of all, I want you to consider the early church. I want you to consider the life of the early church. And go with me to Acts chapter 2 for that. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Something that was true of the early church is that the early church people understood themselves and functioned, lived as members of a distinct community of redeemed people. And I want us to see this. There are so there are a handful of things in the book of Acts that are not directly applicable to us. But one of the things that is directly applicable to us is the life of the early church and how they lived in community as an identifiable, distinct community with one another. And here in Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost. And Peter has just preached one of the greatest sermons in the history of the church. And he concludes with a punchline, his main point of his sermon, what he has been aiming at in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preached Christ. This Messiah that you guys just put to death, he is the long-awaited Messiah, the King, the one that God, that the prophets uh, prophesied about from the Old Testament. He is the one who has come to die for sinners. And notice in verse 37, when they heard this, the sermon that is, they were pierced to the heart. The idea there is they had this sudden stabbing conviction in their hearts when they heard the message. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Have you ever had one of those moments? Shared the gospel with somebody or maybe you shared something from the word or just sharing your faith. And have they asked you something along these lines? What shall we do? What, what, what do I need to do then? I believe I've had a few, a handful of those moments and they're glorious, aren't they? Well, here are a bunch of people that have heard the message of Peter, preach Christ, and they're asking, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter says to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so notice, verse 41, So then, those who had received his word, that is synonymous with putting their faith in Christ, the Christ that Peter had just preached. So then those who had received his word, that has embraced the message of Peter concerning Jesus, were baptized. And that day, notice, there were added about 3,000 souls. That word in verse 41, added, is the compound word, uh, a verb, prostithemi. And it means to, to place into, to have these people placed into um, the body of Christ. It speaks about a placing into in the sense of a visible, deliberate, calculating adding of these believers to the number of the church. 
It's not that, that the church here, as Luke is describing this for us, um, by adding these individuals to their number, that these people were saved because of some kind of formal numbering. They were already saved. They had embraced the message of Christ, right? They had received his word, verse 41. But there was some kind of a listing, some kind of recording, some kind of a numbering of these believers. Some say that it was more than 3,000. Because sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, or some mention how this is just referring to men who came to know Christ. But it could have been a lot more. Later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says that many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So now you have 5,000 plus believers in the early church. How do they know? How do they know numbers? Well, there was some kind of recording, wasn't there? Some kind of countering, some kind of numeration, so that they distinguished themselves as a, as a living organism, as a church. But what was church life like? Look at verse 42. Even though the church explodes from 150 to more than 3,000 in Acts 2, verse 42, notice they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Oh, how glorious that must have been. Amen? That you could function this way. Oh, beloved, that we would function all the more this way. And notice verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And listen to this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. There were those who were, who were experiencing the new birth, coming to know Jesus Christ in a saving way, and they were being added numerically to the church. And you can't miss it. These people clearly had been set apart and identified themselves as members of a distinct community of redeemed people devoted to various activities, the teaching of the apostles, fellowship, public, publicly at the temple, and from house to house, doing all kinds of activities together. Worshiping the Lord all because of their identity in Jesus Christ. You know what we learn from this? That the New Testament early church knew nothing about an isolated, autonomous, and independent way of living Christianity. Yes, First and foremost, they needed to, to settle this broken relationship vertically with God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But then having been forgiven of their sins by this glorious Christ, they were now a part of a body, a group of people, a movement, a living organism. And they were to live that way and to function that way, interdependent of one another, sharing a common life in Christ. What's my point? The life of the early church gives evidence of some type of formal membership by which people um, set themselves apart functionally as a distinct community of redeemed people. It wasn't just this wishy-washy, half in, half out, we'll show up when we want, when we don't want kind of a thing. It was a price to pay. In fact, the whole issue of baptism, public baptism, for them, there, there was a high price for them to be baptized publicly. Do you understand? Some of us don't even want to be baptized behind me. 
who are genuine believers because you're fearful and I get all of that. But do you understand that in the New Testament church, almost immediately after, after um, uh, putting your trust in Jesus Christ, you were to publicly be baptized and that meant that you were pledging allegiance to the rejected Christ. And you would be persecuted for that because now you identified yourself with Him. Secondly, I want you to consider the metaphors for the church in the New Testament. The metaphors for the church in the New Testament. In the New Testament, and we saw this a few weeks ago, but I want to make this point again because I think it's significant for this issue of church membership. In the New Testament, the church is referred to by various metaphors, and they're beautiful and glorious, and each of them have specific significance. Uh, uh, The church is, is put forward as a building, as a temple, as the people of God, as the flock, singular, the flock of God, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Most significantly, the church is put forward as the spiritual family of God, the household of God, with God being our heavenly Father. And listen to this, the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. All of these metaphors emphasize the, 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 the fact that the church is to be holy and set apart from sin unto Christ. And they also emphasize, listen, the unity of the body of Christ and the ongoing functional interdependence of Christians with one another in the context of a local church. Because it cannot just happen by just being a part of the universal church as a blanket statement. I'm a part of the universal church. No, if you are truly going to flesh out the metaphors of Scripture, especially the one about the body of Christ and the spiritual family of God, then you must recognize that you must be connected to a local congregation, which is the formal, visible expression of the universal church. But thirdly, if we really want to get practical, just thirdly, consider the commands of the New Testament. Consider the commands of the New Testament. And I'm talking specifically about the many one another's of the New Testament. 60 plus one another's in the New Testament. These are, these are commandments, instructions to believers that they are to practice toward one another in life on life discipleship. And as I read some of this, I just want to give you a sampling of some of these one another's. I want you to sit here and just reflect on how do I obey these? some of which Pastor Campus is going to read right now, how do I obey these one another's if I'm not a member of any healthy local congregation? What does that look like if I'm not connected in any local church? Here's a sampling of them. Ready? The New Testament instructs believers to fervently love one another, to be devoted to one another, to bear one another's burdens, to owe nothing but love to one another, to accept one another in Christ, to serve one another, to restore one another, to share all good things with one another, to speak the truth to one another in love, to comfort one another, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to assemble yourselves regularly with one another, to pray for one another, to be hospitable to one another, to live in peace with one another, to forgive one another, to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, to care for one another, to come alongside of one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another. I think I already read to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Those are just 20 or 21 one another's. There are at least 40 more of these in the New Testament. Now let me ask you, if we are to obey these, what does that look like if you just live with the mindset, I'm just a part of the universal church. 
What does that look like? When do these one another's, when are they expressed toward other people? They don't make sense, do they? These commands. They don't make sense if you and I are not formally identifying ourselves and connecting to a local church that is healthy. How will we obey those commands, beloved? How will we do that? And position ourselves for others to do these to you, to impact you, to love you, to serve you, to be hospitable for you, to forgive you, to be at peace with you. If you don't position yourself by becoming a member of a local church, how are you positioning yourself to, for others to love you that way? It doesn't make sense, these one another's then. Fourth, consider the letters written specifically to local churches. Consider the letters written specifically to local churches. This one is very important because often people, again, who resist formal membership to a local church will say, you know, we're all part of the, the, the universal church. Why do I need to commit to any local church? The answer that I would give to that is this. Yes, we are a part of the universal church comprised of all of those who, who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. But... Listen to me. Do a survey of the New Testament and what you will find is that of the 114 or so references to the church in the New Testament, at least 90 of those refer to local churches, not the universal church. Local churches that are a part of the universal church. In fact, there are specific letters that we read and ponder and reflect upon and apply to our lives specific letters written to specific people within specific local churches, detailing even specific issues at that church, giving evidence that Christians identified themselves with localized communities, not just threw up their hands in the air and say, you know what, I'm a part of the universal church. I don't have to be connected to any local congregation. No. There's Philippians. Where Paul, the overarching exhortation that Paul gives to the church at Philippi is that they were to walk in unity. And he even, he even names specific individuals in that church, giving evidence that, that there was some kind of a listing. There was some kind of identification of individuals by name with those local churches. Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, were women who were causing division in that particular local church. And Paul says, help these women, help these women get along. And you guys get along for the sake of the progress of the gospel. And there's Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in particular, where Paul addresses various specific issues to the, uh, at the, the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1, he exhorts them to, to, be, to walk in unity. And then in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he addresses the issue of incest in the church that someone has his father's wife, he says which assumes that the Corinthian church had specific knowledge of who this guy was in the church, right? He was a professing believer who was committing incest. And Paul says, get that guy out of the church, a professing believer who is unrepentant, living that way, get him out. Now I can assure you, expelling makes no sense if that guy didn't belong to that Corinthian church, right? If he wasn't identified within that church, in fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And significantly, he says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? That is those who are outside of the church. 
Do not, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Very interesting, isn't it? It's so interesting. The Corinthian church was to deal with those in sin within the church, implying that they knew who was in and who was out. Think about that. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. Paul writes to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, Timothy, and he instructs Timothy of the requirements for putting elderly women on the widow's list. You know what that tells me? Many things. But one of the things that it tells me is that there were formal listings in specific churches that people were identified with those local churches, including widows. And in Romans chapter 16, there are so many of these examples. But in Romans 16, as Paul is wrapping up the letter to the Roman church, he sends greetings by name to at least 25 different members of the Roman church. You don't think that these people were identified with a particular local congregation? They were. They were. And my point is, is that when we study the New Testament letters, there's abundant evidence that Christians were not just part of a universal church, but identified themselves with a local church for mutual fellowship, accountability, and shepherding oversight. That's evident all throughout the New Testament. And on that last note about shepherding oversight, fifthly, okay, consider the authority submission structure implied in the New Testament. Consider the authority submission structure implied in the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13 for this. Hebrews chapter 13. This is so significant for us. It is so evident that one of the reasons why Christians are exhorted to be a part of not just a universal church, but also local congregations is because there is certain, uh, there's a, an authority submission structure that is good and profitable and healthy for you to be under in a local church. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 17. He writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That word there at the beginning of verse 17, obey, is the Greek word that means to be convinced. It's in the passive voice, meaning be convinced or be persuaded by your leaders. Obviously, in so long as they bring you to the word of God, right? In so long as we point you to scripture, it says be persuaded or be convinced by your leaders and submit to them, submit to them. Has the idea of yielding to someone's authority. Now let me ask you something. These are imperatives to obey and submit to your leaders that are to be continuously obeyed habitually. If these are commands that God holds you accountable for, don't you want to know who your leaders are? Wouldn't you want to know who he's talking about here? Is it all the leaders of the whole universal church? In foreign countries in Europe and Southeast Asia and all of that? What's he talking about? I mean, to me as a believer, if I'm being commanded to obey and submit to leaders, I want to know who those leaders are. How do we know that if we're not connected to a local congregation? How would we obey those? Then, I don't know about you guys, but there's a serious admonition here that scares me. That says, obey your leaders and submit to them for, here's the reason why, they, your leaders, keep watch over or look after your souls as those who will give an account. Listen, all of us as elders cringe when we read that verse right there. 
Because ministry is the most exhilarating thing in the world, and yet it is the most challenging thing in the world because of texts like that one right there. And so you know what question arises in my mind as a shepherd of this church? Who am I responsible for? What souls? If I'm going to stand before God, whatever that looks like, Someday, and I'm going to stand before God, and it doesn't have anything to do with my salvation, my secure. My soul is secure in Christ because of what Christ has done, but I'm going to stand before my Heavenly Father someday, and this text tells me that I'm going to render an account for the souls that He allotted to my church. I want to know who those people are. I want to know who they are. Aren't those questions that we would ask about that particular verse? Who are your leaders? And who are the subjects? Who are the souls that we're responsible for as, as leaders? See, that verse right there implies this, uh, this understood authority submission structure in those commands. That those who are being commanded to submit know who they are submitted to, and that those who lead know whose souls they are responsible for. It's like when you took your kids in the past or take them to the park. And you let them play, run around for a while, and eventually what do you say? Kids, it's time to go. Let's get everybody get in the minivan. Now, I know that not all of those kids who are out there in that, that playground, all of a sudden, 30, 40 kids who are playing, all of them are rushing towards your van, right? <laughs> Who's rushing to your van? Your children, the, her, the ones who bear the name Hernandez. They're running to the van, they get into the van, and they know their father's voice, don't they? They know. So they're going to get in the van. They know who, who they should follow. You know who your children are. That's the idea also in the church, isn't it? Shepherds need to know who are the members of the church. Why? So that because we are responsible for your soul before God. And you need to be involved in a local church so that you know the leaders that you need to submit to and obey as long as they are pointing you to the inspired Word of God that has all authority. We don't have any authority as elders, overseers, pastors, same office, outside of what the Scriptures say. You understand that? So you need to know who, who we are in the context of a local church. This may surprise you, but elders are not responsible for every person that occasionally visits the church. That is disconnected from the church. That doesn't want to be accountable. And they've made that very evident. And some of that might be reflected in the fact that they've never wanted to become members of the church. Now, as you know, over the years, elders here never turn a soul back. I've never seen it. Somebody in need, oh, we don't go and check with Ruth. Ruth, is that person a member? Otherwise, we're not going to meet their need. Listen, more often than not... What I've seen is your elders go out of their way to give their time, sacrifice their efforts and energy for the purpose of caring for somebody's need, even if they are not quote-unquote members of Calvary Bible Church. I want you to know that. But you make it very, very difficult to know whether you're in or out because you don't ever become a member. So if you're not going to become a member of Calvary Bible Church, where will you become a member so that you are healthy and spiritually growing and you're under the umbrella of protection of shepherds in a local congregation, which is God's design, this authority submission structure in the church for your benefit and for His glory? Where will you connect? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Look there with me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Therefore, I exhort the elders, and listen to this, the elders among you. 
As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. The among you flock. What's he talking about? He's talking about those who are localized under particular local churches, under the shepherding care of those elders in that local church. The among you flock. Not the universal church. Peter isn't calling them here to, I want you elders to shepherd the whole, everybody all over the world. All believers everywhere. How do you do that? He's talking about the among you flock. Those in their local churches exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over, over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And listen to this. And when the chief shepherd appears, who is Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Listen, I, as an elder of this church, want to receive that unfading crown of glory because my Savior says, well done, good and faithful shepherd. You shepherded the souls allotted to your care. So that's why I want to know who you are. And you show that by a formal commitment to this local church or wherever you go, if it's a healthy church. Acts chapter 20. Go with me there. Acts chapter 20. And verse 28. Paul, bidding farewell to the Ephesian elders, he ministered with them for three years, and he exhorts them as he's departing with very solemn words in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He says, Be on guard for yourselves, elders, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, that's the word, episkopos, overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. I mean, those are serious exhortations, aren't they? To us as elders, as pastors, as overseers. This is why we need to know who is in and who is out, if you will. Because God has designed His church in such a way that He wants His people protected. He wants you protected. So to return to our initial question, where is membership in the Bible? It's all over the New Testament, isn't it? Implied and inferred upon all over from the principles outlined in the New Testament Scripture. And listen to me, if you have a right understanding of the New Testament church, then you will not argue, you will see the need for formal church membership, whether it's at Calvary or in another healthy Bible-teaching, shepherd-led, disciple-making church. You will plug in. Call it whatever you want to call it. Church covenant, church commitment, church identification, church membership. God calls you to be a highly committed participant, connected and committed to a local congregation for His glory, the edification of the people in that church, and for your spiritual vibrancy and health. If I can plead with you, you cannot be everything that God has called you to be by being disconnected, isolated, functioning autonomously as a professing believer outside of the parameters and the scope of God's local church. You cannot do that. Now, what formal membership looks like? There's a lot of freedom and liberty and latitude within every local congregation. Here at Calvary, we have a two-week church membership class that we do. could be more. But we do a, ch a very practical two-week church membership class. And what do we do? We get to know you in that class. You get to share your testimony of how you came to know Christ. 
right? Who you were in the past and then what Christ did in your life. And then we discuss doctrine in that setting, what the church believes and the Calvary distinctives, those biblical priorities that we strive for that we've been talking about this summer. So we have this two-week membership class. And then you have a final exam where you're given a a 50-page intense exam to make sure that's not happening, Nick. Just messing with you, okay? No 50-page exam. That happens with the elder who meets with you after. No. After the two-week church membership class, you meet with an elder, one of the shepherds in the church. They want to get to know you. Um, They want to ask you about where you came from, just so that we can understand who you are, where you're at spiritually, what are your struggles, what are you susceptible to, why, so that we can go around gossiping about you. Now, we want to understand how to help you. We want to take the baton from the previous church and be able to run because you are a follower of Jesus and we want to see you conform to the image of Christ. So what do we need to know about you? That's what we do in that time. We want to help you, get to know you better, communicate to you and make sure that you know that you belong here. There's soul care that happens in that meeting with that particular elder. And then we bring you before the collective group of elders here at the church. If there's no issues... We have a Sunday morning where there's the right hand of fellowship, we call it, where we formally, publicly, before the church body, there are mutual commitments that are made, you to the body and the body to you, essentially to take ownership of one another in love so that we are helping one another grow to conformity to Christ. That's what that's all about. That's our process. I pray that some of you pursue that. Now, having looked at the various evidences for formal local church membership, what is church membership? How do you define that? Let me, let me give you a quick definition. Membership involves making a deliberate, formal commitment to a local church for mutual fellowship and accountability, service, and shepherding oversight. Membership involves making a deliberate, formal commitment to a local church for mutual fellowship and accountability, service, and shepherding oversight. Now, please hear me. Formal membership, as I've described it, described it, doesn't save you. There's no added merits to the merits of Jesus Christ that have been reckoned, imputed to your account by virtue of the fact that you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Formal church membership at any local church doesn't save you or at anything. No brownie points with God for doing that. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're already a member of the spiritual body of Christ. But you are called to identify yourself with a local congregation. Greg Rhodes read 1 John 1, verse 3 earlier. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, writes the Apostle John, so that you too may have fellowship with us, he says. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Not only are you in fellowship with God the Father and His Son in salvation, in regeneration, in the new birth, but He says, we want you to believe and trust and have your faith confirmed so that you know that you have fellowship with us in this beautiful triangular relationship with Christ at the top and each of us on the other side of that triangle. We are members of one another, says Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. There's already a spiritual membership that you're a part of by virtue of your faith in Jesus. You need to visibly express that in identifying yourself with a local congregation. But I'm not just challenging those of you this morning who are not members of this local church. I'm also challenging 
those of you who are formal members of Calvary Bible Church, and yet you don't function that way. You don't function like you are a part of this local church. You're not participating in the life of the body. So here's a third question I want to ask and answer for us. What is a healthy church member? What is a healthy church member? And again, I ask this because many of you might be formal members of this church, but that means very little because you are a passive spectator rather than an active participant in the life of this church. So what is being healthy as a church member look like? First, assuming nothing. Ensure that you are a saved member. Make sure that you are saved. Do you know how many people in my 26 years of walking with the Lord, my Christian pilgrimage, how many people I can look back at various local churches that I was a part of who were members of that particular local church and are now not walking with Christ? Just because you are currently a member of Calvary Bible Church in an official, formal sense doesn't mean that if you don't have a desire for Christ, abiding in Christ, a love for Christ, serving the Lord out of love and gratitude for Him, wanting to be a part of the life of the church, and this has been you as a pattern for years and years and years, it means nothing that you are a a formal member of Calvary Bible Church. You may not be saved. You, first and foremost, need to be reconciled to God by turning from your sins and putting your faith alone in Jesus Christ. St. Clair Ferguson writes this, Non-Christians should not seek to join a church, but seek, first of all, to learn what it means to be a Christian. End quote. That's your issue, first and foremost. Listen. Spiritual membership precedes formal, visible church membership. First comes regeneration, the new birth, then comes formal, visible membership in a local church. Make sure that you're saved. Second, are you maturing? Are you a saved member? Are you a maturing member? Let me ask you, are you growing and becoming like Christ? Are you actively pursuing Jesus? Do you see over a long haul progress in knowing, loving, and serving Jesus Christ? Do you see growth in your life? You know what this requires? That you be in regular fellowship with other believers if you want to continue to grow in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25. Read those talks about not forsaking our assembling together, but instead being around, spending time together so that we would stimulate one another to love and good deeds. If you want to grow in Christ, you need to be around other believers. Let me ask you, are you in a fellowship group? Right now we're going to dismiss, where are you headed after this? Now it might be that you might There might be an exception today and you have a particular commitment. That's okay. I'm talking about the the pattern. Are you really plugged in to the life of the church? Or you're not plugged into any fellowship group second hour. You're just going to exit through the back doors of the church. And that's it. Never to be seen again until next Sunday morning. If that's you, can I plead with you? You won't ever be spiritually healthy and everything that God wants you to be if you are functioning in an isolated, autonomous, independent fashion like that. That is not the church of God. It's not. Are you in a small group? 
In men's or women's small group for mutual encouragement and accountability. There are so many of those throughout the week. You need to plug in with other brothers in Christ. If you're a man, other brothers in Christ, so that they help you run the race of the Christian life so that you finish by the grace of God. You need that. I need that. And you ladies too, there are all kinds of Bible studies during the week. Are you plugged into a women's Bible study? Well, they're imperfect and they're flawed. Yes, they are. But so are you for crying out loud. Are you plugged in? See, we come up with all kinds of excuses. I'm a lot older. You don't understand. I'm in my latter years of life. Good. You have six or seven fellowship groups where you can plug in. Well, you know, I'm in kind of a middle range age-wise. Good. Any adult fellowship group will do for you. Well, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm a single person. Good. Any particular fellowship group will do for you. Well, you know, we're a young married couple with babies and talk. Good. You have stronghold for young marrieds that you can join and be a part of. Targeted discipleship in there with godly older couples who are going to invest into you. You need that as young couples. Well, you know, I'm a college and career person. You know what? There's something called Summit Second Hour for college and career age kids. Kids, my gosh, that's how I know I'm getting older now. (laughs) Young men and women, young men and women in Summit. There's that for you, for targeted discipleship. You know, I'm a youth, I'm a student. Good, we have the vine. Junior high and high school ministries for you to be discipled. People that are going to come alongside of your parents and help you grow in Christ. I'm a kid and I'm a toddler. Good, we have KFC. That doesn't mean Kentucky Fried Chicken. It means kids for Christ. See, nobody has an excuse. We have something for everybody here. Not in a buffet sense contradicting myself now but we're talking about shepherding and discipleship aren't we are you a part of this listen small groups are not the biblical way that if you're not in a small group in some legalistic way you're not a spiritual person that's not the point these are contexts that we have structured and created by the grace of God that become platforms for you to mutually edify and build up others and that others have an opportunity to get to know you and encourage you in the race of the Christian life. Take advantage of them. Take advantage of them. This is how the body works, doesn't it? This is how the body works. Christians taking ownership of one another. We are a spiritual family. But how do you expect people to care for you and vice versa if you are not a functioning member, if you are not connected to the local church? How do you expect that? So you must be saved. You must be maturing as a healthy church member. You must be contributing. You must be contributing. Contributing in what ways? Stewardship, financially? Are you investing your resources that God has given you into the work of the gospel through this local church or whatever healthy local church you're a part of? You need to be a contributor in the area of giving financially. Are you serving in this church? Are you using your spiritual gifts for the benefit of others to the glory of God? Are you meeting needs? Are you meeting needs? A healthy church member is a saved member, a maturing member, a contributing member. Finally, a healthy church member is a disciple-making member. 
a disciple-making member. You know what? The Great Commission, if you are a Christian this morning, is for you. Jesus said, Matthew 28, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus says, All authority, I am Lord. You confess me as Lord. Go and make disciples. Let me ask you something. Are you a healthy member who recognizes that you are on mission and you are evangelizing, sharing your faith? Are you a disciple-making disciple? Are you a disciple-making disciple? I love what one preacher has said. If you are not fishing, then maybe you are not following. If you are not fishing for people, then maybe you are not following. If your heart doesn't yearn for the unconverted and for the lost, whether in your home or in your neighborhood or in your city or in our country or all over the world so that you're driven to prayer and even actively pursuing every type of relationship that you can to share about Jesus so that people see His glory and that He is the one Savior and their only hope, then there is a problem. Maybe you're hardened to the unconverted. A healthy church member is a missional member, beloved, who understands, he or she understands that you are on mission and every context where God has you, including those in your home, is your mission field to preach Christ to those people. So what is a healthy church member? Saved, maturing, contributing, evangelizing member. That's what it means to be a healthy church member member. Listen, we're living in a time when our culture runs or completely neglects things like and words like commitment and accountability, right? That's the kind of culture that we're living in. People don't want to be committed to the church. They want to be comfortable. Set the bar low. Set expectations low. Listen to me. We're not about setting a higher standard than the Word of God sets, but this is a pretty high standard that by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, we are able to meet, right? But people don't want that. People want to be comfortable. In our culture, people don't want to be accountable. You know what they want to be? They want to be autonomous. They want to be autonomous. Leave me alone. I'm independent. I, it's a free country. I get to I have this freedom. I get to live however I want. Not so in the church. Jesus is our Lord. We follow his word. And his word says that you need to be accountable, not autonomous as a believer. If you have a problem with that, take it up with Jesus. Take it up with him in prayer. Ask him to soften your heart to that reality. Commitment, accountability, these are at the core of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And listen, formal church membership shows that you understand that following Christ is about those things such as commitment, accountability, not only to Christ, but also to his people, his bride, whom he loves. And all things are going to culminate one day, it says in the book of Revelation, with the marriage of the lamb to his bride, his church. Amen? We want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to understand that you call us to commitment, that you call us to be people who do not function autonomously, but function accountable. And we should do this out of worship and gratitude and love for you, Lord. Help us to do that. Lord, give us the grace to remember that, Lord, in everything that we set ourselves out to do on this earth, We will do it imperfectly and in a flawed way, yes, but the church is your bride. 
Jesus died for his church. Help us to love her. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.